Welcome to Shelter in Place, a podcast about finding daily sanity in a world that feels increasingly insane. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. Before I begin today's episode, I wanted to ask for your help with something. If you listen on iTunes, you've probably seen their list of podcasts designated as COVID-19 essential listening. I've reached out to Apple to ask them to include Shelter in Place on that list, but I need your help. If you could take a moment to go to iTunes, rate Shelter in Place, and write a quick review of what you like about the show, I would be so grateful. Now on to the show. Yesterday, I finally did something I've been putting off. I knew when we started sheltering in place that we'd probably have to cancel a trip that we'd planned for the first week of May. But every time I thought about it, I couldn't pull the trigger. I think I was holding on to a secret hope that maybe things would go back to normal by then. This particular trip wasn't just a trip. My husband Nate and I were going to Mexico to check out schools for the kids and look for housing so our family could move there in July. When I canceled those plane tickets, it felt like pulling the plug on a big machine that's been whirring away for years. But to give the full weight of what the trip meant to us, I need to back up to 17 years ago in Minneapolis. I grew up in Minneapolis. These days, my immediate family lives in other parts of the country. But in 2003, most of them were still there. Nate and I both lived in Uptown, but on this one particular Sunday, we headed out to the suburbs to meet up with my parents. They'd invited us to go to church with them and then have lunch together afterward. The message that morning was an odd one. It was about an obscure passage I've never heard anyone speak about before or since, about the ancient Israelite practice of the sabbatical year. The year of Jubilee, which happens every 49 years, gets the occasional offhand mention in Judaism and Christianity, but the sabbatical year, also called the Sabbath year, is a blank in Leviticus 25. The idea of the sabbatical year was this. The Israelites who lived in an agrarian society would spend six years working the fields. Then every seventh year, they'd take off. No one really knows what they did during that year, but what's clear is that there was a rhythm of life that included a break from regular work. They weren't making any money that year. They were trusting that the surplus of the years leading up to it would be enough to get them through until the cycle started over. Maybe it was that we were both struggling to make enough money to pay our bills, or that we were months away from our wedding and having lots of big-picture conversations about the life we were creating together, but the idea of the sabbatical year put its teeth in us. What would it look like in capitalist America if we lived like that? If instead of continually making more money and getting more stuff, every seven years we pulled the plug on all of it, got off the hamster wheel, and spent a year doing something totally different, something where we didn't make money or gain status, but instead lived in the rhythms of rest and service. The idea of living in that rhythm didn't feel romantic to us, but it felt right. Even then, when we had no money, we felt the pull of the good life. We both love good food and wine, and if we had the money to do it, we loved to travel the world. If left to our own devices, we knew that our lives could very easily revolve around the pursuit of our own happiness. The sabbatical year seemed like the kind of guardrail that could save us from ourselves. For the next seven years, the idea kept resurfacing. It traveled with us to California— 
through seasons of working jobs we hated and not having jobs, through grad school, through seven years of friendships gained and lost. The sabbatical year started to take shape in ways we hadn't anticipated. A good friend of ours took a class on human trafficking at a time when very few people in the world were talking about it. It seemed impossible that there could be 27 million modern-day slaves in the world today. My friend let me borrow Kevin Bales's book, Disposable People, which started me on a path of researching human trafficking for the next several years. We began to examine our lives in ways that hadn't occurred to us before. Where was our coffee coming from? Our clothes? Our bananas? Our chocolate? We realized we were culpable. The things we were learning began to thread themselves into our sabbatical conversations. We wanted the year to have purpose, to be a kind of reset from our Western lives. We knew if we just stayed here, it would be too tempting to just live life as usual. So we started thinking about how to uproot ourselves. We began to think of the sabbatical year not just as a break from regular life, but a chance to volunteer our time and experience how most of the rest of the world outside of the U.S. was living. We started reaching out to organizations all over the world that were facing modern-day slavery head-on. We didn't have any delusions about saving the world during our year away, but we thought maybe we could be useful to someone who already had work in place, who just needed more bodies to continue their mission. By 2010, a lot had changed in our lives since the original idea took root. We were in our 30s, still struggling, but for totally different reasons. I was working 60-hour weeks at a soulless job and wrestling with depression. We bought a house when we'd had two incomes, but then the market crashed and Nate got laid off from his job in advertising. Our marriage was wearing thin in places we hadn't anticipated. We were fighting to save it, but losing. We wondered if, given how messy and complicated life was, we should just let go of the sabbatical idea. But the idea had also begun to feel like an escape hatch. We both knew that we couldn't sustain the life we were in. I'd applied for a Fulbright scholarship to the Philippines to work on a novel while volunteering with survivors of sex trafficking. That spring, I got the call that I'd gotten the Fulbright. And just like that, our dream of the sabbatical year became reality. We quit our jobs and rented out our house at a loss, but still, it was better than nothing, which was what you could say for a lot of our life then. And we were off. You've already heard this part of the story about the year we spent with Samaritana in Quezon City. It's the story I told in episode 22 about how that year in Manila changed us forever, ruined us for the better. It was a hard year, but we still look back on it as one of the best years of our life. We came back to the U.S. in 2011, exactly one year later. We started having kids. We began to plan for the next sabbatical year. But in 2015, at the point when our planning should have been in high gear, we entered into two solid years of heartbreak, death, and loss. We hadn't given up on the sabbatical year, but we had to put the idea on hold. It was all we could do to just survive that time. But by 2017, we were planning again, actively taking steps to spend the next sabbatical year in Mexico, starting in July 2020. Once again, the sabbatical year directed our lives. We put our kids in a Spanish immersion preschool, followed by a bilingual public school. I enrolled in online Spanish classes. 
I applied for another Fulbright, this time for the Senior Scholar Fulbright, which usually goes to PhDs, but which I'm technically qualified for since MFA is the terminal degree for creative writing. I found my way to my project by tunneling through the stories that my undocumented friends shared with me and my mom's childhood along the Mexican border. The project would include a podcast, 100 interviews in the U.S. and Mexico, and the hope that those stories could bridge our country's divide over immigration. We leaned on the advice of our Mexican friends, took their suggestions for where to live and who we should reach out to. Things started to come together. Four Mexican universities and the Mexican Department of Immigration wrote letters to support my project. The podcast I was creating was a finalist for a big WNYC contest. I got word that I was a finalist for the Fulbright, too. But then in late February, the tide suddenly turned. I didn't get the Fulbright. Then COVID-19 happened. The United States and Mexico entered a joint initiative March 21st, restricting non-essential travel along the U.S.-Mexico border. The Mexican Ministry of Education closed all schools until at least May 30th. My friends in Mexico are all sheltering in place right now, just like us. At first, we held on to the hope that we'd head to Mexico in July as planned. Our Mexico connections were still in place. I had 22 of my 50 U.S. interviews completed and was on schedule to complete the rest. We figured we could patch together our finances by renting out our house and maybe taking on a few freelance gigs throughout the year. It wasn't a perfect plan, but it seemed feasible. But this past week, we finally accepted that our sabbatical year isn't going to happen, at least not now. Even if COVID-19 stopped in its tracks tomorrow, our financial situation has changed so drastically that the move no longer feels tenable. The savings that were supposed to get us through that year in Mexico are instead getting us through right now. It feels impossible to make future plans for anything but we're tentatively pushing the sabbatical year off to July 2021. There are good things that could come out of that delay, of course. I have more time to finish my U.S. interviews. I can apply for the Fulbright again, with another year to make my application stronger. Our kids will be one year older. Our Spanish that much better. My friend Emily suggested to me recently that maybe this is our sabbatical year, this life we're living right now. The suggestion made me want to cry. It certainly doesn't feel like a sabbatical, even if it is a break from regular living. Our last sabbatical year was a year of stepping out of the intensity of our lives in the U.S. This feels like that intensity has been amplified. For years, we felt like our current lives are on one side of a scale, and the other side, the future, is behind a wall. The sabbatical year was the thing that would shift the balance. Now, quite suddenly, the weights are balanced, but not in the way that we'd hoped. It raises the question of what it means to take a sabbatical. If it's only about pulling ourselves from our regular lives, then my friend is right that COVID-19 is achieving that. I'm taking her suggestion to heart. But I still feel the pull of the sabbatical year. Even our kids feel it. They've grown up accepting and anticipating its rhythm. I don't doubt that rhythm now, even with everything that's changed. But Emily's suggestion does challenge me to think about this time differently. Maybe this isn't the sabbatical year, but the year that teaches us what a sabbatical is. 
where we learn to live more intentionally in all aspects of our lives so that when the scales finally do tip, we're ready. If you've enjoyed today's episode of Shelter in Place, I would love it if you could rate it and review it wherever you listen, share it with a friend, and subscribe. Shelter in Place is sponsored by Brick and Mortar and Delta Wines. Even in these tough times, this family business has stepped up to be the first sponsor of Shelter in Place. When you order wine from brickandmortarwines.com or winesforchange.com, you can get 10% off your order by using the promo code SHELTER. If you order six or more bottles from Brick and Mortar, you'll also get free shipping and overnight shipping in California. The Shelter in Place music was composed by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions, and the Shelter in Place artwork was created by Sarah Edgel. As always, you can find links to the things I mentioned in each episode in my show notes at laurajoycedavis.com. Until tomorrow, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis.